You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is July 20th, and New York has officially entered phase four of the reopening, or as coronavirus calls it, back to work, baby. Now, as you can see, I am still filming the show from my apartment because I'm using the TV studio to store grain. Yeah, you gotta be ready for the second wave. Anyway, on tonight's episode, Trader Joe's decolonizes itself. Kanye West drops his weirdest track yet. And although most classrooms are closed, Chris Wallace still found a way to take Trump to school. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, This is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's begin today's episode with the celebration of John Lewis, the civil rights icon who died Friday at the age of 80. All weekend, people were remembering just how extraordinary this man's life was. Civil rights icon and American hero John Lewis passing away at the age of 80. As a college student, he helped lead the fight against racial inequality by participating in multiple protests. In 1963, he was just 23, the youngest speaker at the March on Washington, right alongside Martin Luther King Jr. My friends, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. Two years later, he would lead peaceful protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, fighting for the right to vote. They were met with brutal force by state troopers, Lewis bloodied and with a fractured skull. He would continue his fight as a U.S. representative known as the conscience of Congress. Hundreds gathering overnight for a candlelight vigil there in Atlanta. An outpouring of tributes for a legend including from Barack Obama, who credited Lewis with helping to make his presidency possible, later awarding him the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2011, and now sharing these words. Not many of us get to live to see our own legacy play out in such a meaningful, remarkable way. John Lewis did. Wow. You know you have lived quite a life when you get heartfelt tributes like that from all across the globe. And they really did come in from everywhere even from Republican colleagues that said, hey, this guy was an amazing human being who fought for what he believed in. Although I will say there were a few that were just a little bit off key. For instance, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader and what mushrooms would look like if they had faces. He sent out a long statement praising Lewis's sacrifices, but at the same time, he's also been blocking the effort Lewis led to fully restore the Voting Rights Act. So it's a lot like if the Joker wrote a eulogy for Batman. Some people tried to destroy the city he loved or tried to poison him with laughing gas. But I'll always miss Batsy. (laughs) What? You were the one doing that. I mean, to be fair though, Mitch McConnell always sends a sweet message when a black colleague dies because it's one less person he has to keep from voting. But probably the most awkward tribute to John Lewis came from Marco Rubio, Republican senator and guy who could get away with playing Little League. On Saturday, Rubio tweeted a tribute to John Lewis, but with a photo of himself standing with a different deceased black congressman, Elijah Cummings. And I'm sorry, man, but that's just so embarrassing. I mean, this is the racial version of calling out your ex's name in bed. But I guess now I finally understand why Rubio sent me an edible arrangement on Don Lemon's birthday. I mean, it didn't make sense, but I ate that shit. And it wasn't just Rubio. Two Republican senators confused John Lewis with Elijah Cummings which is positively insane. 
because they worked with the man for years. And this probably explains why Republicans only have one black guy in Congress at a time. Less chance for confusion, all right? You're the House guy and you're the Senate one. All right, this works. But let's move on to a somewhat less legendary political figure, Kanye West, hip-hop superstar and Kim Kardashian's eldest child. Kanye has been promoting a new album slash presidential campaign, and it has not been going great. Kanye West is moving forward with his campaign for president. He held a rally in Charleston, South Carolina yesterday. Arriving on stage with the year 2020 shaved into the back of his head and wearing what appeared to be a military-style vest, West appeared to be putting forward policy proposals on the fly. Everybody that has a baby gets a million dollars or something you have And at one point, he broke down into tears while describing how he was nearly aborted by his parents. There would have been no Kanye West because my dad was too busy. One of the more controversial statements of the night, though, came when he criticized abolitionist Harriet Tubman. Well, Harriet Tubman never actually freed the slaves. She just had the slaves go work for other white people. Y'all, we leaving right now. Okay. This is officially the weirdest hip-hop beef of all time. You're gonna go after Harriet Tubman for not getting the slaves better jobs? What was she supposed to do? Run the Underground Railroad and LinkedIn? I mean, I guess congratulations, though. You know, Kanye found a campaign hat that black people are even less likely to wear than Trump's. And honestly, guys, I don't know what to make of this. I genuinely don't know what to make of this. You know, but because my takeaway from this event is that Kanye West doesn't seem well. Like, I feel like someone who cares about him needs to take his microphone away. Although, ironically, the best person for that job is Kanye. The battle for justice in America continues every single day. But if it seems like there's no end in sight, at least there's progress on some of the smaller issues. Trader Joe's supermarket chain is under fire. It's being urged to change some of the names of its ethnic foods. Over 1,000 people have signed a petition urging the company to rename products labeled Trader Ming's, Trader Jose's, and Trader John Oaks. Trader Joe's says they have been in a years-long process of repackaging products and will soon complete the work. We did it! Black Lives Matter. No justice, no peace. And also rename the pasta. But look, I get why people complained about how they were branding the foods in Trader Joe's. Like, let's be honest, you don't have to call something Trader Ming's for them to know that it's Chinese food, right? Just like you don't have to call it Trader Karen's for them to know that it has pumpkin spice in it. So I am glad that they're revamping these labels if this is what people want. And you know, if your company's over 60 years old, it's inevitable. The branding is gonna become problematic at some point. I mean, you should see what Honey Nut Cheerios looked like up until last week. Whew, they were dope. That was problematic. Now, you may be wondering, what happens to all this food after it gets canceled? Like, do they just throw it away? Because, I mean, that seems like a waste. Well, the good news is, there's actually a grocery service that gives you the food you need with all of the racial insensitivity you crave. Are you sad because your favorite problematic brands have been canceled? Aunt Jemima was canceled. Then you need Bigot Basket. Bigot Basket delivers all the brands that you won't find in those PC grocery stores. Products like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, Builder Walnuts, Tucker Carlsonos, and White Chocolate. Sure, you could buy the same exact food under a different name, but you have a sophisticated palate, and you know food tastes better when it's making someone sad. And to own the libs even more, 
All our deliveries are packaged in those plastic rings that kill turtles. So order your Bigot Basket today. Use promo code All Lives Matter to get 10% off. Whew, so offensive, but so delicious. All right, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll take a look at how everyone should be interviewing Donald Trump. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So yesterday, President Trump sat down for an interview with Chris Wallace, the only reporter at Fox News who isn't trying to become the next press secretary. And you can tell that he isn't because this was no softball interview. In fact, it was pretty much a masterclass in how not to let Trump get away with his usual bullshit. Like, you know how Trump is always bragging about how well the United States is doing with the coronavirus? Well, here's what happened when he tried that move with Chris Wallace. I think we have one of the lowest mortality it's rates true, in the sir. world. We, well, we, we're gonna we take a, a look. We had 900 deaths on a single day. We will this, take a this look. This week. Ready? I, you you can check you it out. Could you please get me the mortality rate? Yeah. Kaylee's right here. I heard we had one of the lowest, maybe the lowest mortality I, rate anywhere in the world. You have the numbers, please? <laughs> because I heard we had the best mortality rate. The case rate of similarly situated countries, as uh, Dr. Burks points out, and this is Number number one low mortality rate. I hope you show the scenario because it shows what fake news is all about. Okay, okay go I ahead. don't think I'm fake news, but okay. I will we'll put well, our there you were. we'll put our stats. You on. said we had the worst mortality rate in the world, I and we have the best. The all right, it's a little complicated, but bear with us. We went with numbers from Johns Hopkins University, which charted the mortality rate for 20 countries hit by the virus. The U.S. ranked seventh, better than the United Kingdom, but worse than Brazil and Russia. The White House went with this chart from the European CDC, which shows Italy and Spain doing worse, but countries like Brazil and South Korea doing better. Other countries doing better, like Russia, aren't included in the White House chart. Oh, you see? Chris Wallace did two things right there that Trump absolutely hates. He proved him wrong and he made him do homework. And the funniest part about this to me, isn't that Trump used a bullshit chart to prove that America has the best mortality rate? It's that even on a bullshit chart, it's still not true. I mean, if you just want any chart that's gonna show how well you're doing, just go all the way with it. And that wasn't the only time Trump tried to bring receipts that he didn't actually have. Here he is attempting to prove that Joe Biden said he wants to defund the police. They want to defund the police and Biden wants to defund the police. Sir, he does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. I will get that one, just like I was right on the mortality rate. Did you read the charter that he agreed to? It says nothing about defunding the police. Oh, really? It says abolish, it says defund. Let's go. All right. Get me me the charter, please. All right. Chris, you've got to start studying for these. He says defund the police. He says, defund the police. They talk about abolishing the police. They talk about illegal I, I, I aliens look, I look pouring. Forward, I look forward to seeing that. Like Sir, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you on any of those. I'm disagreeing about defund police. Incent- the White House never sent us evidence the Bernie Biden platform calls for defunding or abolishing police because there is none. <laughs> oh man, I don't care how many times I watch it. It is priceless seeing Trump flail around trying to find a fact that he made up. And it actually shows you how his brain just kind of mixes up everything he reads into one big information smoothie. Because clearly, he read that Biden wants to abolish immigration detention, and he also read that Biden wants police reform, and then his brain just mashed them up into Biden wants to abolish the police. I kind of want to give Trump a book to read just to see how he would explain it back to me. Green Eggs and Ham is a tragic story about two eggs that want to marry a ham. 
They want to get married. They love each other. But again, another great fact check from Chris Wallace. And I gotta admit, I love Chris Wallace, the journalist. But Chris Wallace, the dad, must be a nightmare. His kids are probably coming home like, yeah, school is fine. You know, we just did a bunch of work. I just put my head down and worked. Well, actually, I have photo evidence here of you spending all day under the bleachers vaping while making out with Samantha. And honestly, it got to the point where Chris Wallace wasn't just fact-checking Trump. He was fact-shaming him. Because for years now, Trump has been bragging about what a good score he got on some cognitive ability test. And yesterday, Wallace flat out told Trump that his test score ain't shit. In the Fox poll, they asked people, who is more competent? Who's got, whose mind is sounder? Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test too when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you do it? Well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the it last... It has a picture and it says, the what's last, that? And it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation. Because, yes, the first few questions are easy, but I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you, you couldn't answer, you couldn't answer All right, what's the question? many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. Okay. okay? Uh, you and I answered about- all 35 questions correctly. <laughs> wow, guys. This is sort of making me sad right now. Because Trump is trying so hard to claim he's a genius because he passed a test where you have to identify an elephant. Which, let's be honest, even for Trump is too easy. I mean, if they wanted to test Trump, They shouldn't have asked him to identify an elephant. They should have asked him to identify his second daughter. Yeah, that would have been impressive. Is it, is it this one? No, that's Jared, sir. Okay. But I was close, right? And also, counting back from 100 by seven is super easy. Anyone can do it. 100, 93, uh... You don't have to be a genius. And you know what, jokes aside, I actually do feel reassured that Trump passed that cognitive test. Because someday, when terrorists threaten to kidnap the Washington Monument, unless the president correctly identifies an elephant, you know Trump's got that shit handled. It's that one. It's the rhino with the long nose. Now, Wallace covered a lot of ground in this interview. But no matter the subject, Trump managed to make it weird. For instance, when Wallace asked Trump about army bases named after Confederate generals, this is what he said. The National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, you have threatened to veto it because in the bill, and this is supported by Republicans as well as Democrats, it would rename army bases named for Confederate generals. We won two world wars, two world wars, beautiful world wars that were vicious and horrible, and we won them out of Fort Bragg, We want to, out of all of these forts, that now they want to throw those names away. Go to that community where Fort Bragg is in a great state. I love that state. Go to to the community. Say, how do you like the idea of renaming Fort Bragg? And then what are we going to name it? You're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? Okay, I'm sorry, what? Two beautiful world wars? This dude really can't objectify anything. We've had... Two beautiful, bangable world wars. Totally tens. That is such a dumb thing to say 
that they didn't even think to put something like that on the cognitive test. Should we ask people about both world wars and see if they find them attractive or not? No, forget it. Nobody's brain is that broken. So the elephant should look like this, yeah? Also, how insulting is it to say that people might rename the bases after L. Shopton? Of course they should rename it after L. Shopton. Think about how terrifying that would be for enemy soldiers. Ah, Scheiße, here comes the El Sharpton Brigade. They're gonna call us out on our racism. We're gonna get so canceled. This almost goes without saying, but there's a giant middle ground between naming bases after Confederate generals and naming them after El Sharpton. I mean, America has had lots of non-Confederate generals. And Trump should know that. He's fired a lot of them. I mean, you can make any problem sound ridiculous if you pretend El Shopton is the only solution. President Trump, we need universal health care. Oh, who's gonna be your doctor? El Shopton? But here's the thing. As incredible as it was to see Trump face a real interviewer, nothing Wallace says is gonna convince Trump that he's wrong about anything. Because as Trump showed, even when he is already being proven wrong, he still insists that eventually he's gonna be right. Dr. Fauci at the beginning said, this will pass, don't worry about it, this will pass. He was wrong. But right? you made mistakes too. I guess everybody makes mistakes. I was gonna say, you said at one point. I think we're gonna be very good with the coronavirus. I think that at some point uh, that's going to sort of just disappear, I hope. I'll be right eventually. <laughs> I will I be right eventually. You know, I said, it's going to disappear. I'll say it again. But does it's that going dis to disappear. Does that discredit and you? I'll be right. Eventually, I'll be right. That's not how being right works. If you guess the wrong answer at trivia, you can't get a point by claiming that eventually one of the answers will be Marge Simpson. But that answer does expose the fundamental truth about Trump. He's much more concerned about being able to say he's right than about actually being right. If coronavirus ends up wiping out the entire planet except for Trump, he'll be standing at a podium all by himself saying, you see folks, it totally disappeared. I was right. All right, don't go away because after the break, I'll be speaking with former national security advisor and ambassador, Susan Rice. And then we'll be talking to Game of Thrones star, Natalie Emmanuel. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest is Susan Rice, former national security advisor and UN ambassador for President Obama. And she's also a New York Times bestselling author of the book, Tough Love. We spoke about Joe Biden's vice presidential prospects and the legacy of John Lewis. Ambassador Rice, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. It's great to be with you, Trevor, thanks. It's a very different way to be with one another and um, during this time, I've, I've realized it's also a very different way for us to mourn the passing of people that we admired or cared about. Um, most recently, John Lewis. When you look at his legacy and his life and, and what we need to continue doing today, how far do you think we are on continuing that journey and, that, and creating that good trouble, as he called it? Well, I hope that John Lewis's legacy will be to give us all a kick in the pants and remind us that we can be much better than we are, especially than we are today. You know, he had such warmth and such humanity uh, and such courage, and he never, never quit fighting. And he knew that he was leaving us at a moment when we were being sorely tested, when there's the possibility of us finally reckoning as he tried all his life with our historic racial injustices and our deep-seated inequalities. Uh, that are not only racial, but socioeconomic. Um, but it's also a moment where we're struggling with a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting uh, low-income people and people of color, immigrants. 
and uh, and we have leadership that literally could care less. You were the national security advisor to President Obama. You were part of the pandemic response team. You were part of the people who were tasked with protecting America from a situation just like this. What plans did you have in place that the Trump administration did or didn't use or what should have been done as somebody who was on a task force designed just to do this? We understood, as did, frankly, prior administrations, that pandemics are inevitable that they, it's hard to predict exactly when they'll come, but we know they will come and they've come repeatedly since 1918. In fact, we had under the Obama administration in 2009, what was known as a swine flu pandemic, which was quite consequential. So we understood this could happen. So we were prepared. We left the uh, incoming Trump administration with briefing papers and a, a 69 page playbook which I like to call pandemics for dummies. It was, here are all the questions and considerations you should run through if and when you face this kind of crisis. We had an, a tabletop exercise with the entire uh, incoming Trump cabinet and the outgoing Obama cabinet. And we sat down and one of the scenarios we ran for them turned out to be prescient. It was of such a novel SARS-like virus emerging from China. And, you know, all of that seemed to be for naught because a couple of years into office, President Trump uh, dismantled the office that I set up on global health security. They trashed that playbook or stuck it in some drawer in some shelf and never pulled it out. For two months, January, February, and part of March, he really denied the reality of this virus. It, you know, equated it to the seasonal flu, said it would go away. It was no big deal. And then by that time, you know, it was already well embedded in our country and closing down flights from China or flights from Europe were too little too late. Uh, and he says that saved, you know, hundreds of millions of lives. Well, it, it's cost, his mishandling of this has already cost 140,000 lives and it's going to tragically be many more. It seems like America is one of the few countries where the country doesn't have a rule about wearing masks. Whereas overseas, you get like the UK, you get South Africa, you get so many countries where they've gone, hey, we don't care about your personal opinions on this. Just like wearing clothes, you have to wear a mask for now. And it's as simple as that. Do you think the federal government should have more of a, of a global message in and around masks? Absolutely. I mean, it's ridiculous that we've allowed small pieces of cotton to be, you know, this incredibly divisive thing. We don't mind wearing shirts and pants in public. Why do we have to mind wearing masks in public? Uh, if it's going to protect ourselves and our loved ones and those in our community. If Donald Trump had from early on said, look, you know, I recognize that, you know, it may be a little bit uh, uncomfortable or inconvenient, but when you're out in public, do as I do, wear a mask, keep your loved ones and yourself safe, keep your city safe. It'll make a huge difference. It'll enable us to bend this curve, keep it down and get our businesses back up and running, people back to their jobs, kids back to their schools. I don't think we would have had this political reaction to the extent that we have today. How do you view the situation in Portland right now? Because that, that has thrown many Americans off kilter, you know? Federal officers coming in in unmarked cars, in unmarked uniforms, grabbing people off the streets, throwing them into vans, apprehending them. People feeling like 
it feels less like a like a free country and and more like an authoritarian regime you know for some of the people who are on the ground there when you look at what's happening i mean there's always a balance between federal response and and letting the states handle it or the cities themselves but how do you view what's happening in portland right now do you think that it's a it's a it's a required use of force or or federal assistance or do you think that something has gone off the rails no it's an abuse of power by president trump and it's a purely politically motivated abuse of power. He's sagging in the polls. He thinks the only way to rally his base is through racism and you know, touting law and order. He is sending federal forces out on the streets without markings, without insignia, uh, probably in, without legal authority to do so. And he's rounding up people as if we were you know, in Belarus or something. It's ridiculous. And you know, it, it has nothing to do with their stated mandate of protecting federal buildings and installations. They're now out literally beating the crap out of peaceful protesters uh, and trying to incite more violence so that they have a, an excuse to use more force. But here he's now pushing the envelope in Portland and threatening to do it elsewhere. And I think Americans need to be on high alert. This is an abuse of power. It's corruption. It's autocracy on our own shores. There's no denying that your name has come up repeatedly in and around the conversation of vice president. Would you want to serve in the Biden administration? Would you want to serve as a VP? Well, Trevor, what I want is for Joe Biden to be elected the next president of the United States. I want us to win the Senate and keep the House so that we have the opportunity to put our country back on course and to unite the country uh, and to deal with the damage that's been done, but also to take this opportunity and move forward, he- improve health care, improve education, deal with our underlying uh, disparities. And if I can help in any way, uh, you know, whether it's at the highest levels or some other way, to be part of helping him get elected and to govern if and when he does, then that's what I want to do. And if, you know, if that's not what he chooses for me, that's fine as well. I will do everything I can regardless because of all that we've just talked about, so much is at stake. We have got to move this country in a different and better direction. Um, And so I'll do anything I can, uh, whether it's the modern day equivalent of licking envelopes or it's, you know, standing (laughs) by his side. Well, um, as you say, I hope America gets back on track. I hope um, people find a way to depoliticize those little pieces of cotton. And hopefully your words will become prescient when we chat again in a few months. Ambassador Rice, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thanks, Trevor. Great to be with you. After the break, I'll be speaking to Natalie Emanuel. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Natalie Emmanuel, and we spoke about the Black Lives Matter movement in Britain. We also spoke about her new series, Die Hot, which is available right now on Quibi. Now, in this lesson, we're going to focus and explore the action star's motivations. Agent King, what is your motivation? After working undercover in Paris, I go down to the basement of the Louvre where I thwart the theft of an ancient Egyptian artifact when I'm accosted by a rogue agent. Good. Agent Hart? A cost. That's a little strong, isn't it? What the f- Focus, focus. Natalie Emanuel, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Hi, this is so cool. I feel excited to be on the show, even though, you know, 
it's virtually. Congratulations on um, the new Quibi show, which is, I mean, getting rave reviews and honestly, my favorite Quibi show. I know it's a really short format and people are trying to figure out how to make a show in such a short format, but you on the show uh, with Kevin Hart, it's called Die Hart, and it's honestly one of the funniest and action-packed shows I've ever seen, regardless of the platform. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And um, I think for the short form, uh, the short platform, sorry, format that that they have created, um, I think the show so wonderfully, like, just keeps you on a, uh, like, cliffhanger at the end of every episode. And you're like, how have they done this? Like, it's a short episode, but I want to click the next one. And um, I think they've done such a great job with it. And it was just such a joy to work on. It was, if you find the show funny, like, it's safe to say that we laughed a lot when we were um, making it as well. Right. It, it, it's also like a, it's, it's also a cool departure for us to see you in. Because, I mean, you know, we've seen you in action movies like Fast and the Furious. And then we've seen you in, like, really dramatic roles. I mean, most famously Game of Thrones. And so, like, to see you in a comedy where you don't take yourself seriously, but in the show you're trying to take yourself seriously is a fun world to be in. You've got Kevin Hart, who's always hilarious. And then you've got John Travolta, who just, like, comes in with this gravitas and hilarious... Like, he just comes in with hilarity on screen that you don't expect. What was it like working with the... Th- like, just the three of you together in the space, doing something completely new? Well, first of all, for me, I was kind of pinching myself the whole time because I'm standing with Kevin Hart and (laughs) John Travolta, like what? Um, So that was pretty exciting for me. Um, But to be honest, the three of us together, we had such great chemistry and we had so much fun together. And um, Kevin is just so, um, he has so much energy and keeps the the laughs all the time just to keep the energy up. You know how... Being on set and long days and it's cold and damp and you're like, oh, but like he's always so like ready to go. And he was so funny and his genius. And then working with John, I mean, he's like funny in a whole other way, but it's so brilliant. And it was just so amazing to watch him work. And his, um, his uh, range is insane. And then yeah, you're just definitely. all these ideas out and just like you know it's incredible to watch and I had so much fun and we like like I said before we just laughed so much and had a really great time together. You were also one of the first people I saw in the UK who were you know part of the Black Lives Matter movement like on the ground I I mean I know you know in America we saw this movement but once it spread around the globe I remember uh, you know seeing you talking about it and you were you were unabashed about it you weren't afraid to share your thoughts on what needs to change, not just in society, but on screen. You know, a lot of people talk about how you were the only woman of color on Game of Thrones as a, as a leading character, or as a character, you know, spoken word character. And it's, um, it's, it must be an interesting position to be in, but tell me why you've gotten so involved in this and, and what you hope to achieve um, in your industry and hopefully in, in society at large. Well, I think it's a, it's a matter of humanity at this point, you know, like I'm just like everyone, I'm just, sick of seeing people dying and I realized that I have a platform and I have an audience and if I can speak out about these things spread information share my own experiences and maybe make 
a difference in some way, then that's the only way I, that's all I can do. And, you know, when it comes to the entertainment industry, I think that we've made some really important leaps and um, important changes, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I think part of this moment and this movement has resulted in people having the conversations about how many black creatives we are hiring at every level of production. Because it's so easy to sort of do the like, oh, well, we've got a really diverse, inclusive cast in front of the camera. And then every, every level behind the camera isn't really reflective of the world that we live in. And, um, and I think that is where we keep falling into these kind of stereotypes and tropes of these kind of negative depictions of minorities. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that for me is the goal, is to sort of spark conversation about the stories and the voices that are in the room, not just in front of the camera. And um, I have real ambition to make that change when I am lucky enough to start producing and making my own things, that I have that, um in like that's just a part of my desire is to hire as inclusively as possible whether it be gender race you know um just everyone like well like you say the first step is beginning with the conversations having the intention and then hopefully creating something where everyone has some equity that represents society at large so um thank you for sharing that and thank you for coming on the show and thank you for staying healthy. And um, hopefully we'll see you again, um, not through a lens. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good one, Natalie. Bye. Thank you so much, Natalie. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, America is facing a nationwide poll shortage right now. And it's because most poll workers are over 60. And with COVID still in the air, they are understandably not showing up. But the thing is, fewer poll workers means fewer polling stations are gonna be open, and it means that there's gonna be longer lines that not everybody can afford to stay and wait in, especially in communities of color. The good news is, though, most poll working is paid, and in some states, you can be as young as 16 to do it. So, if you're interested and you have the time, this is your chance to save granny, protect democracy, and get some of that money, too. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 